For the past three years, the Science of Reading Star Awards have honored educators who are beacons of light, guiding their classrooms, schools, districts, and most importantly, students through transformations with literacy. Now join us as we honor this year's winners at a special celebration event, which will feature celebrity keynoters and past podcast guests, Mitchell Brookins. Two years ago, one of my students as a school administrator came to me on the playground and he said, Mr. Brookins, I want to be like the other kids. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Mr. Brookins, I want to learn how to read. And Malcolm Mitchell. When I scored a touchdown, they either probably put my name in the newspaper, people probably tell me good job all around town. But when I finished one book, no one ever said anything. So which one am I more likely to repeat? Find out more information and register for the 2024 Science of Reading Star Awards ceremony at amplify.com slash Star Awards celebrations. That's amplify.com slash Star Awards celebration, all one word. These are challenging times, and we respect your unwavering commitment to your students. At Amplify, we are working especially hard to support you. And as we all grapple with what it means to focus on the science of reading in a new world of remote learning, we're committed to walking with you through the unknown. Welcome to Science of Reading, the podcast. I'm your host, Susan Lambert. Join us as we talk with experts to explore what it takes to develop joyful, confident, and capable readers. On today's episode, I talk with Doug Lamav, director of Uncommon Schools and author of several books, including Teach Like a Champion. He gives his perspective on the current school closure crisis, the importance of culture and curriculum, and some reflections on his book, Reading Reconsidered. Well, hi, Doug. Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. Hi, Susan. Uh, glad to be with you. So as you know, I always start by asking our guests to tell our listeners a little about themselves and how it is that you ended up both in education and also you know, interested in reading. Mm. Uh, well, I guess I, I'm an English major, a recovering English major. Uh, and you know, people, <laughs> when you're an English major, pe- people ask you all the time um, questions like, like what was it was it worth it <laughs> and what do you do with it and I, I honestly I honestly and truly believe that um, I'm so happy that I was an English major and I would be happy if one of my children was um, just because I, I feel like it you know being able to read carefully and well and deeply and being able to write carefully and self-reflectively and well and capture an idea I just think those are two of the fundamentals of uh, of the human endeavor so uh, I was an English major. Uh, I loved it. Then I, uh, I set out to become an English teacher, and I did that for several years, and I enjoyed it. Uh, I went to graduate school because I thought I wanted to be a professor with elbow patches and a pipe and things like that. Um, <laughs> and then I, re- I realized as I had a brush with, uh, brush with a PhD that um, teaching at the college level wasn't really, or that working at the college level wasn't really about teaching in most places, and that um, academia was uh, was not... It wasn't geared around teaching and learning and that I would never be happy in this, you know, toiling away in the bowels of the, in the bowels of a machine that had different priorities. And so I kind of scrambled around and tried to decide what I was going to do. And I ran into a colleague of mine who I knew, I knew from college, my college days, and she was starting a charter school. And I said, what's a charter school? And, um, she described it to me and it, uh, you know, we just, we connected on a lot of different issues about 
I wanted to try to run this school. So I moved to Boston and I started the school. And about a year and a half later, um, she called me into her office and said she had built a technology platform. This was like in 1997 at the heyday of the dot-com boom. And she'd built a technology platform to manage all the data that came through schools. And she said, guess what? And I said, what? And she said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it. And I said, do what? And she said, move to Silicon Valley and build this, you know, build this thing into a dream and, um, and get, and you're in charge. Oh, and no. honestly, honestly, I turned, turned around to see who was behind me, who she might possibly be talking to at that point, but it turned out it was me. Um, <laughs> and so I took over the, took over the school and, um, and learned a lot, a lot about delegate, about leadership through team and delegating response, delegating uh, responsibility and opportunity to other people, just because I had a great group of people around me. And I knew that there were a lot of challenges in running a school that I couldn't solve. Uh, I did that for a couple of years and um, went to work for the Charter Schools Institute, Institute in New York, which oversaw assessing charter schools. We, you know, we all said we were going to be better, but we hadn't figured out how we we're going to measure it. And it was fascinating. And then I did a business school degree. And during that time, I decided I wanted to build a network of schools, uh, which ultimately helped to start an organization called Uncommon Schools. Um, and while I was doing it, I just realized that there were, um, there were so many unanswered questions for teachers. You know, we would recruit these idealistic, driven, passionate people who wanted to go into inner city classrooms and change the equation of opportunity for the, the kids who were there. And they would come to us with these questions that were, um, there were no answers for. Uh, and, you know, what do you do if... Uh, and so in, in, in trying to solve those problems, um, I just got the idea of like, what if I, what if I used all the data that's available to find the high, you know, the teachers who went into classrooms with high poverty kids and still got incredible results. And I w went to see what they did differently from everyone else. And I did, and they were incredible. And I started videotaping a few of those people with what at first was grainy, looks like grainy wedding, uh, <laughs> wedding footage, uh, because I was holding the camera, grainy wedding footage by what appeared to be a drunk, uh, drunk videographer, though I promise I wasn't. Uh, and anyway, anyway, that, that became Teach Like a Champion and the idea of, um, studying high-performing teachers to understand how to be successful in the classroom. Yeah. What a great story. The birth of uncommon schools, the legacy of Teach Like a Champion, um, all because you were just digging in and trying to solve problems and help help people do better. Uh, sort of like our current reality. Yeah. Well, it's, <laughs> you know, it's really interesting that our current, you know, uh, our current reality is a total, is a total sea change. And I think that, you know, we, we got together, have a team of, uh, of 18 incredible people who I work with on the Teach Like a Champion team. And, you know, suddenly we found ourselves saying classrooms, remember those? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it, you know, it's scary and teachers are struggling and it's, uh, it's very real. And I think what we realize is what we do best is learn that we love to study the hard realities of trying to do this really difficult job. And so we got together and we decided, look, instead of one or two days a week studying video of teachers, we're going to, we're going to study video of teachers online every single day. We're going to get together. We're going to watch video. We're going to just try and learn faster than anybody else can not just theoretically what works, but what works in a granular sense. And when you have the choice between A and B, how do you decide and what does it look like when you do it well? And so we've been trying to respond by, you know, gathering video footage of, te <laughs> of teachers online doing their thing and understanding that, you know, the tiny decisions that, uh, that, 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 you know, the hundreds of tiny decisions that teachers make in a course of a lesson. And so, um, uh, 
uh, learning never goes out of style. <laughs> yeah. Well, isn't that true? It just is yeah. sort of morphing in interesting ways right now. And like you said, that as it relates to schooling and now remote learning, um, this is a this is sort of a path nobody's ever been down before. And I'm wondering how you all are thinking about that and yeah. how maybe you're responding and what some of your concerns might be in this new environment. Yeah, I think it, you know, the new environment is, um, it's entirely different, but many of the challenges are the same. You know, I think one of the um, issues like equity and how we do and, and our struggle to teach literacy, all those things are magnified uh, when we go online. And it's interesting. I just wrote a, I just, on my blog, I just wrote a blog post. Um, it was about the last video that my team and I watched of classroom teaching, what we were calling bricks and mortar teaching mm -hmm. uh, before, you know, all of our schools got closed. And it was this beautiful, beautiful classroom, uh, seventh grade English classroom in Denver. And what the thing that struck me watching it now, uh, you know, after these changes was how pervasive, how fundamentally influential the culture that this teacher had built. Um, her name was Miss Tyndall. It was a, at Denver Science, Denver School of Science and Technology. And they're just these beautiful moments where she asks her kids, it's a turn and talk question. And the question is about, um, is the symbol of blind justice, uh, is that supposed to be a, a positive or a negative symbol? They're getting ready to read uh, narrative, narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass. She asks them this turn and talk question, and the room just crackles to life. And I think about, you know, like the most skeptical student in the room is being changed by that interaction because, you know, 28 other kids around him or her are engaging energetically in this conversation, um, in part because she's in, installed this set of procedures for a turn and talk that makes it smooth and seamless. And so that socializes, it, you know, it's in this blog post, I called it a bright mirror, which it both reflects the students, but it also changes the students. Uh, and then, you know, in, the, in, the, in this, this moment, they're social, you know, kids, are, kids in this room are socialized to be more engaged and uh, more interested in the intellectual work and more enthusiastic about learning. Then there's this beautiful moment where she cold calls a, a kid to participate with this just beautiful smile that's inclusive to him. And he starts to talk and the kids around him are... Um, uh, they're all looking at him, you know, they, with their their um, their eye contact just says, like, I care about what you're saying. And they're sort of snapping as he's talking to show their appreciation for his thought. It's this very hesitant kid who wasn't even willing to raise his hand. And now suddenly he's talking confidently and, uh, and in depth about the book. And it's just, you know, classrooms are first and foremost cultures. And they shape people's perceptions about their relationship to the endeavor and the institution. And... Um, Look, there are a lot of benefits of online learning. It makes some things simpler. It makes us able to communicate ideas over across space. But it also means that we lose a lot of the acculturating elements that we have that are deeply profound. You know, we're trying to teach now through a through a tunnel, you know, <laughs> and saying to students, "I see you at the I see you there at the end of that at the end of this tunnel, but you don't have a room full of thirty kids around them that you can use to shape." Um, fundamental beliefs about learning as clearly. And I think that that's, um, you know, you and I were chatting before we started and I was saying that, um, you know, I think when this started, a lot of people, a lot of technology believers said, oh, this is going to be the moment when uh, the, the point of inflection, when we realize that how much we can do online in education. And in many ways, I think we're going to realize the opposite, which is uh, we're going to realize how much of education is about 
culture and people together in a room and uh and that that part of the interaction is fundamental and i you know can't wait to <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of work to do and a lot of important work to do and a lot of benefit to understanding what we can do and how we can do it better remotely but i can't wait to be back in the classroom and i, I just believe that when we all get back there um, we'll see it through new eyes you know as you were as you were talking about that that's just you know just really beautiful the you know the culture of that classroom you describe it reminded me of you've probably seen it too this experience that's sort of going viral on social media where teachers are getting together in their cars individually caravanning through the neighborhoods and mm. waving at students mm -hmm. and how much that simple gesture meant to both the teachers and to the kids in the right. neighborhood as they're wa you know waving as as the cars are passing and yeah. that kind of culture is created first and foremost in the classroom yeah absolutely yeah yeah, it's, so, it's uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, any small effort to recapture a little bit of that connection. Yeah, feels, absolutely. Yeah. Feels feels profound in a way that we wouldn't have realized a month ago. I agree. I agree. And there's reasons that the one place that did it, and I don't even know where it originated, but people are replicating that all over the country because yeah. it, it was so impactful. Um, I know you've thought a lot about the role of technology um, and mm. what that should play in the classroom. Uh, what other things are you thinking about now as we're sort of in this, you know, <laughs> total immersive space of this, uh, yeah. sort of juxtaposed with that beautiful message you just told us about that classroom observation? Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of my time, you know, just before this massive change happened, the the single top priority for myself and my team has been to write an English curriculum. And we've been doing that because we think... Um, well, one, because we, th we think there are huge gaps in how we teach literacy and that, that, um, we need to sort of reconsider the way that we approach literacy, um, because we're, you know, a good school can close the gap between kids of, uh, kids of privilege and, and kids who aren't born to opportunity in math and, uh, you know, and, and in other subjects in a year or two, and yet reading rates and reading skills, uh, those gaps persist. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, you know, they're, they're really challenging. And so this, you know, we decided to build a reading curriculum to take everything we learned from the science of reading and from watching great teachers and to sort of, and to put it into this curriculum. And so we've been, we've been thinking a, a lot about that. And as I watch online instruction, um, I see the challenges again, I think, you know, everything is different, but everything is the same. Everything is hard. Everything is challenging to teach in new ways online. But reading is the most challenging and the most yeah. fraught, and uh, uh, and I think it compounds a lot of. You know, I I won't lie. I'm a I'm a technology skeptic. What I see when I see teachers bringing technology into the classroom is distraction. Um, that technology, your you know, your average time persisting on a task when you're on your laptop is measured in seconds. You're um, socialized to constantly be waiting for the, you know, the next thing to come pinging in with a bright light and a, yeah. uh, and, a, and a sound. And so kids read differently now than, than we read when we were, when we were reading, when we were growing up, we would read for an hour or half an hour, however long it was steady, uninterrupted in deep meditation and kids now read. Um, I'm thinking of my son sometimes here and the battles we have over this, get left to his own devices. He would read lying on his back with his cell phone on his chest. 
Yeah. <laughs> beep, beep, yep. beep. Guess you know. Guess what Jason's doing. Guess what Matt's doing. Guess what you know. Guess what. Guess what's happening right now. It's a. It's a constant state of half attention. And I think that you know Marianne Wolf has done some really profound work on this. And what it does, it doesn't just distract distract you. It disrupts your capacity to pay attention for long periods of time, because the the brain is neuroplastic, and when you um, read in a constant constant state of half attention, you lose your ability to read deeply and slowly and in a focused way. And and all of your listeners can probably feel this happening to yourself as you read now and you read on a screen. You can feel your eyes skipping down the page, looking to leap ahead. You don't read with the same level of concentration you used to. And that is technology disrupting the depth of our thinking. Um, and it's technology has huge benefits, but it has huge downsides also. And that is a very profound one that I think, you know, when the schools that my kids go to come to tell me about how they're infusing the classroom with technology, my question is, how are you protecting the classroom from technology? Um, how school is the one place where can reliably enforce a culture of we're going to think deeply about this in reading and writing, you know, book and pencil and paper for a sustained period of time without interruption. Yeah. Um, and so mm-hmm. I, I think like, and I, so, you know, when I see teachers teaching, you know, reading online, <laughs> um, all those challenges are magnified, but uh, you know, I think I have a lot of, um, I'm not a true believer in technology in schools yet. Uh, yeah, and while you're watching it unfold too, so you get a real live petri dish, if you will, to be able to look at your ideas and think about them. Um, I think Marianne Wolf's book that you're referencing is Reader Come Home. Is that right? Yeah, it is. Spectacular, yeah. spectacular book. Yeah, I will. We'll be sure to link our listeners in the show notes to that. Um, I appreciate your perspective on that. Um, I think in that book, she does talk about how, I mean, we know our brain, our brain is, it is, has the potential to be rewired. We do it when mm-hmm. we learn how to read. Um, and she talks about the, you know, the challenges with that, with technology. Um, yeah. So, so you all are reconsidering uh, yes. <laughs> reading curriculum yeah. <laughs> and working on that project now. Um, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, I'm really, really excited about it. Uh, and maybe I'll tell you a couple of things about the content of the curriculum and a couple of things about the structure of the curriculum. Because I think That'd be great. They're both, they're both important. And maybe I'll start in the opposite order and I'll start with structure. And the first thing is that, you know, I think that um, lesson planning is uh, a specific challenge, different from the challenge of teaching, one that teachers get, you know, curriculum design is something very few teachers get support in and it's incredibly time consuming and if we're going to do it at the level that it needs to be done to break down the challenges in reading it's it's incredibly onerous and it's probably not realistic for most teachers to think that they're going to teach three or four or five lessons in a day and then uh take a great novel and build a lesson around it that's going to have the level of substance and specificity and planning uh, to be able to get their kids to the next level and also to go home to their own family and, <laughs> and yeah. have dinner with their own kids and have, right. a, have a sustainable life. So yeah. I, I think that just one of the things we've realized is that, is that there is some role for um, shared lesson planning and for, and for centralized lesson planning and for the notion that like 
someone is going to take their time to build a really great lesson on Lord, you know, each day on Lord of the Flies, it's going to have carefully thought through questions and embedded nonfiction texts that are going to illuminate that, that it's not reasonable to think that you can do both of those things, but that the, if you take that argument too far, it's also dangerous, which is, and I, I know networks that have done this, which is like the lesson plan suddenly becomes scripted. And someone you know, you've never met sends you your lesson plan every day with a 20 page set of notes about what you're supposed to say every minute. And that's not, that's not good either. Yeah. So what you want as a teacher is carefully thought through beautifully designed plan that gives you the right to make decisions and adapt it as you, as you go. And so that's, that's basically what we've tried to do is we've found the best lesson planners that we've could. We've, we've built daily lesson plans around a core set of ideas that are really valuable in terms of reading instruction, but are time consuming to implement. Um, I'll, I'll come back to what a couple of those are. And then we've tried to give these tools to teachers in a way that is flexible and modular. So in every lesson, you know, we flag the questions that we think are most important on the understanding that like every teacher has been in the situation where they have a 60, you know, they have a 60 minute, 60 minutes of things they're supposed to teach and you look up and you have 40 minutes worth of content still to go and you have 20 minutes left in, <laughs> in which to teach it. Right. And so you have to make some hard decisions about what do I drop and why. And so we've tried to like within our curriculum, like flags, or, these are things you shouldn't drop. These are things that are fine to drop. The, you know, we encourage teachers to make decisions and, you know, we give it to them in a format where they we want you to slightly change the questions if you want to. I think that's great. Um, so that teachers can have, with the support of their administration, different degrees of uh, discretion over the curriculum. Similarly, we think that we think that a curriculum should be built around books. That um, you know, so much of English curriculum now is like kids reading passages that look like state test passages, and we just believe in the book. Hmm. Books are beautiful and powerful, and they're the place where the most sacred ideas in our, our culture are transcribed. So the idea behind our curriculum is you read five or six novels or, 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 or you know, memoirs or, or books in the course of the year. But that's, this raises the question of like, so what are, this, what are the best six books to read at seventh grade? And the answer is uh, we, can't, we, can't choose, we can't choose them for every school. And so in our curriculum, we've chosen 10 books for seventh grade. And the idea is that each school should choose six of those 10. And they should choose the six that most speak to that teacher or to that school or to that school in a way that, you know, that their, their kids think about it slightly differently. Um, Cause the right, the right answer is not the same everywhere, but there's also something very profound about shared text. Think about, you know, you want to make you want to compare a novel that you're reading in class to some other novel that every other kid in the class has read. What book can you possibly choose that every other kid in the class will have read so you can compare this, so you can make a comparison of the narrative structure in this novel to some other novel? And so the idea behind this is that you could have a sort of internal canon in your school of books that you know everyone would have read. You could have selected them from a, ver a variety of high-quality, reasonable choices. And so that idea of modularity and flexibility with, with high quality is that that's a key part of the structure of it. And then just in terms of the content, I, I think the research is overwhelmingly clear that reading is a much more knowledge-driven endeavor than most people have considered, that when students fail to make an inference from a book, it's not because they don't know that an inference is a combination of, um, of hints from the text and things that you know in your background knowledge. You know, you can tell me that over and over again, and I can chant it and repeat it, and you can break it down into eight steps. But the reason I failed to make an inference is because I don't have the background knowledge to understand um, 
what the author is getting at. And so um, the belief that if I make a hundred inferences from Talk Everlasting, it will teach me to make inferences about Oliver Twist. And every other book that I read for the rest of my life is, uh, it's a, it's a dream. It's a beautiful dream. <laughs> it's a, it's a, this idea of transferable skills is, is, is flawed and that what we have to do if we want kids to read deeply and to learn more from text is build in background knowledge. And so there are four or five key things that we do to build in background knowledge in our curriculum. One of them is sort of constantly feed in aligned nonfiction pieces to elaborate and expound upon concepts in the text. So does give you a small quick example in our unit on Number of the Stars, Lois Lowry's novel about World War II. In Denmark, uh, there's rationing, right, where uh, they don't have sugar and milk and butter. And so we read a nonfiction article about rationing and all the ways it happens and how it's done. And so, uh, one, when kids are reading nonfiction, suddenly they're kind of interested in the nonfiction because it's connected to something that they're experiencing through the novel. But then as they read the novel, suddenly every reference to rationing and how it works, they understand more deeply because they have background knowledge about rationing. Right. Um, and so, um, I just think there are several ways that, we've set out to be much more knowledge-driven vocabulary. I won't get into the details of it, but I think we do vocabulary in a very different way to make it knowledge-driven. Hmm. I think one, a, a second thing about the, the curriculum that I think is different is just it, it's writing-intensive, and we've tried to think about writing in, in, two different, in several different ways. But we believe that writing is not just a way to demonstrate your thinking, but writing is a tool for discovering what you think. We call that formative writing, and not enough of it happens in reading classes the writing prompts in reading classes looked like the prompts on state test questions um how has jonas changed in this chapter provide three pieces of evidence i always feel this very profoundly personally i don't know what i think yet about this. i'm still wrestling with the ideas right i want someone to say why might jonas have done this what are some possible reasons so that i can use my writing to discover what i think and i have to do that before i answer a summative question and so our curriculum is full of these very short formative writing prompts where students learn to use writing as a tool for, as a tool to learn what they think as opposed to demonstrate what they think, um, which, you know, I think both of those things are, are very, very important. Yeah. And then one last thing I'd point out about our curriculum is just we, we do a lot, it's shared book, and we do a lot of reading aloud because we believe that the book is in a death struggle against the phone. And... The selling point for the book is shared culture, which is we're all sitting in the room together and we're reading the book, sometimes silently together, sometimes aloud together, and the book comes to life and we're all laughing at it together or whatever emotion is that we're having. And that is what convinces students that it is worth it to read books in an age when people are not reading books. And walk through any airport when there are airports again and count how many people are sitting with books in the departure lounge. You'll be lucky if you see a person with a book. The book is dying. And, and so we just have this very strong belief that we have to build a culture around reading that celebrates it and where we're, we're enjoying it together if we want to convince students that it's worthwhile. So I just think in a lot of reading curriculum, you know, you go off and read on your own and all the reading happens for homework. Everyone's reading their own book and, you know, because kids should be able to choose what they like. Um, and we just deeply believe in the shared experience of reading a book together. Yeah, as part of the instructional process, right? That's really, yes. yeah, real, uh, really important. A couple things that I love about what you talked about is, um, first of all, like my my some of my graduate work was in curriculum, and it was then when I realized that yeah. the work of teaching and the work of curriculum development really are two things, and 
um, when I was a principal, I for sure didn't want my teachers to be curriculum writers yeah. because if they wanted to do that, they should go another path. I wanted my teachers to be teachers, right? And yeah. develop that culture and have that relationship. Um, that's, it's really, it's really profound. I think we're asking, sometimes we're asking our teachers to do more than, than really what they should be doing. Yeah. Um, and more than it, more than more than is sustainable to do. More than absolutely, do. Well, yeah. It's it's there are so many downsides of, of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And we we wonder why first year, second year, third year teachers are burnt out in their yeah. first few years. That's right. Um, the other thing that I really loved was was you, and I could almost picture this in my mind. I was just having a conversation with a colleague about this, the idea of depth of comprehend depth depth of comprehension of a text. Yeah. yeah. And when you have that background knowledge, right? Like then you're just drawn into that story or that piece of writing at such a different level. So if you can sort of peel the layers of the onion back, mm -hmm. you can really get that full experience when you have the appropriate background knowledge. Yeah, I think it's a great leveler for kids too. So many kids feel cut off from the conversation when, you know, um, When the teacher asks questions like, "What's the um, what's the author trying to do with this passage?" Like, you know, some kids some kids get that, and some kids don't. But if I if I don't understand right away, like unless I have background knowledge, I don't really understand the author's context. That's a big big inference. Yeah. But if you tell me a lot about the author and what he what she believed in and what the context of her life was, then all of a sudden it like levels the playing field for me, and actually, I can see how this idea that you told me was important plays out here um and all of a sudden i'm in the in the game that i i wasn't before when it uh when it was a bit when when the presumption was that this is a that being able to interpret a book is a skill that you either have or you don't yeah i mean i wonder how many adults can relate to that experience because i know i can as an adult being in even a small discussion around a small piece of text where you know, we were trying to engage in a conversation and I was tapped out of that conversation because I didn't have the background knowledge to be able to yeah. engage. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's very, it's very true. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's that great. Just uh, great about how you're thinking about pulling that thing together. I want to make a little bit of a segue sure. um, to your uh, book that I probably I'm sure our listeners know a lot about uh, Teach Like a Champion, but particularly on this broad, uh, this podcast, the book Reading Reconsidered, right? I'm sure that's in the hands of most everybody that's listening. Um, it's been a bit of time since that book has come out. And I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about, well, maybe we'll just say mm -hmm. this, Recon as you reconsider your book Reading Reconsidered, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What are the couple things that that really resonate with people? Two or three things that really resonate people that you really still like about this this text? Yeah, I think the um, the section on text selection has has resonated with people and is important. The notion is that you know I think for a while there was a notion that all texts are equal and that it doesn't really matter what you read because reading is a set of skills and if you ask exactly the right questions about whatever text it is, you'll be teaching kids to read. Um, and I think I was really happy that I think the first two chapters, which are about um, about choosing texts and and what and why you choose to read, I think really resonated with people. And um, 
um, I'm, I'm really happy with that. And I think that that's, that part has um, stood the test of time well. And then I think there's a section in there about, about ways of reading that uh, continues to be important and maybe even has grown, grown in importance, you know, essentially that it's about, it's about a real, like, uh, a really mundane set of decisions, which is how are you going to read? There are three ways to read. You can read aloud to kids. You can have kids read silently, or you can have the kids read aloud. Um, and that decision is really, really, each of those three different approaches has benefits and limitations. If you want kids to have an ear for what complex text sounds like when it's read well, you ha you're the best reader in the room. You have to sometimes read to them so they can hear it. And so reading aloud is very powerful, but it's also important for them to practice reading aloud and for them to hear each other reading aloud with expression and, uh, and, and joy and to be the weakest reader in the room needs to practice enough till they get fluent. And you can gather data when they read aloud, but they also need to be able to read silently because that is the way that you will read <laughs> for most right. of your life and in college. <laughs> and so, and so there, none of these three approaches to reading is better than the other. It's about a healthy, balanced diet of three different ways of reading and making strategic decisions about how we're going to read when and how we get the most out of each of those approaches when we use them. And I think especially given the battle for reading and to make sure that kids do read and still value reading, I just think the cultural, the cultural pieces of the book's battle against the cell phone become even more relevant in that, in that frame. And so that part of the book, I think, um, uh, is also particularly relevant now. Um, okay, so you know this one's coming. How about yep. the, the flip side then? Yeah. As you reconsider the book, what is it that you might want to change or rethink? Yeah, ironically, the two of, two of what were then and are still now my favorite chapters are the two that I think are, ha can I just say happily out of date or happily that I would most <laughs> like? I would most like to rewrite because what it says is that um, I've learned the most about them. I think we tried to make the case in the book for background knowledge and the mm. importance of background knowledge, but I don't think we did it strongly enough. And I think since, you know, I think the primary tool that we described in the book was embedded nonfiction, but since then, I think my team and I have discovered several other ways to build and reinforce and leverage background knowledge in reading. And I just don't think we quite um, made the case as thoroughly about what the research says about the importance of background knowledge as we could have. So if I, the first thing I would do if I rewrote it would be, um, you know, just to build out and emphasize that argument a little bit more. I mean, fortunately, other people have done it really well, and I think that that's, hopefully it will be demonstrated in this in this curriculum, which ironically is called the Reading Reconsidered Curriculum, <laughs> or at least tentatively is, um, even though uh, it sort of expands on and develops that chapter. And then the other chapter is the writing chapter. I mean, we talk a lot in the book about the synergies between writing and reading, and but I think since then, I think we've gotten real clarity in our minds about three different types of writing and why each of them are so important. And two of them I mentioned before, one of them is summative writing, which is what most teachers do. It's writing to explain your opinion or position mm -hmm. on a piece of text. There's formative writing, which is writing that you use to discover what you think about a text. And then the third type of writing, you know, we're just deeply indebted to Judith Hochman for her spectacular and profound book, The Writing Revolution, Yeah. to help us think more about this idea of what we, developmental writing, which is teaching intentionally through deliberate practice students to build syntactic control, which is mastery of, the, of syntactic forms, 
Um, and one of the, you know, we just, in, in reading Reconsider, I think we talk about art of the sentence, which are a series of exercises you might use to help students learn to do things like start a sentence with an introductory prepositional phrase. Because if you can't do that, you end up writing sentences that sound like, I think boop, I think bop, I think bink. And, and no wonder we get paragraphs full of <laughs> wooden inflexible pose. And the way to do it, ironically, is to assign much shorter pieces of writing, one sentence at a time, and critique that and give feedback on a single sentence. Yeah. And I think Hawk, Hawkman's just level of sophistication in talking about other ways to approach this idea of developmental writing and teaching syntactic control was really, really profound. And so we've taken a lot of those and embedded them into our curriculum. And I think um, when and if there's a version two of reading reconsidered, I think that's a place where we'd like to expand a lot on uh, expand a lot on what we've learned. And yeah, the great thing about the read uh, that uh, her model, um, the writing revolution model, is it also uh, parallels well with knowledge development or this idea yes. of building background knowledge. Yeah. Yes, very much yeah. so. And with the re and with the research on deliberate practice. Right. Yes. You know, yes. Which I think is, um, you know, just cognitive science has learned so much in the last twenty years, uh, and it's been slow to make its way into into teaching and learning. Uh, yeah. But I think I think Hawk, Judith's book is one of the great examples of the way that several pieces of key research about how people learn is. Shown. Yeah, I totally totally agree with that. Um, you, I do want to ask you a little bit about. You do professional development, is that right, around the, the concepts from Reading Re Reconsidered? Yes, yes we do. And um, I'm just wondering how some of the development of what you're talking about now is in response to, you know, actual needs of folks out there in your, yeah. in your PD work. Yeah, it's interesting because I, th I think the biggest response is the curriculum itself, which is, I th you know, we, we, we set out to do workshops. I, I love doing the workshops. and. Um, the people that I co-present them with, I, you know, think they're profound and insightful. But what we found was that even when people left, that people who left the workshop inspired and loved the ideas and excited, um, it's a very different thing to then go back to your school and be able to implement it. And that yeah. the <laughs> barrier was curriculum. That like yeah. either I don't shape my own curriculum, so if I don't shape the curriculum. Um, how do I how do I start to be more knowledge driven or more intentional about the writing in my uh, in my class? Or let's say I do have control of the curriculum. My principal tells me, or my district tells me, great, you can design your own lesson plans if you want to. A, it could be exhausting. B, you know, something like uh, this idea of embedding nonfiction, which is let's find fifteen to twenty nonfiction articles that we can embed in the study of a novel that illuminate some fascinating aspect about the novel, bring the novel to life, and make the nonfiction worth reading. Where do I find these 10 articles? <laughs> and prepare them and get them ready. Like it's, it's, yeah. it's, exha it's exhausting work. It's not feasible. And so what we yeah. realized was um, that great teaching required great curriculum, and great curriculum requires great teaching, and that we really needed to be developing them together. So that even if you take things from Teach Like a Champion, like um, maybe one of the most characteristic techniques from Teach Like a Champion is cold call. Um, if I really wanted to fundamentally change teachers' ability to cold call well, you know, at our workshops, we have them practice cold calling. But really, you should practice cold calling from questions that you're actually going to ask in your lesson next week as opposed to theoretical questions. 
and one of the things that you should be thinking about when you decide to cold call is, well, so of the 30 questions in this lesson, which one should I cold call and who and why? That decision-making is one of is, is a critical part of it, and you can't really get to the decision-making part of professional development unless you're looking at actual curriculum and actual, actual instructional choices around which ma mapping which technique to which piece of content. And yeah. so I think the biggest takeaway from those sessions has been just our recognition of the necessity of building a curriculum and doing training for teachers on curriculum and instruction at the same time because they're just they're inextricably linked. I love I love how you said that. I mean, we all have talked about and some people give lip service to this. Some people know it deeply, the idea of the importance of high quality instructional materials. But what you said, I just want to like highlight it and say it again, say it again, because I think it's so important is that great teaching requires great curriculum and great curriculum requires great teaching. And when you have those two things together, wow, students in those classrooms are the ones that get the biggest benefit. For sure. Yeah. Well, we appreciate the conversation. I know I very much appreciate the conversation today. And as we sort of wrap this episode up, I'm wondering if you'd leave our listeners with mm. some wisdom. Um, so maybe oh one or two <laughs> things, ideas or concepts or thoughts that you would love for them to take away. Mm. The Doug Lamov wisdom of the day. Oh boy. Oh. <laughs> uh, uh, my wife would, be the first to tell you how far taking my advice will get you, but <laughs> and, and it might not be. <laughs> uh, so, well, one thing is I just continue to believe, I think, I think that the process of, of, you know, this sudden switch that we've all made from the classroom to online learning has taught us a couple of, of really profound things. One, it's reminded me of the, how deeply important it is to study, to, to keep learning from and studying from what people actually do in the classroom and that that never goes out of style. And, you know, I always find if I'm in a workshop and we're watching a video and I've literally seen that video a hundred times, someone will say something profound about it that I've never thought about it again, that the, mm -hmm. the learning curve never, never stops. It's a little bit more, you know, it's always urgent. It might be a little bit more urgent now because we have made this fundamental shift, but I just think the humility of, of constantly studying the craft and devoting your life to the, uh, the, craft, the craftsmanship of, uh, of teaching is, is incredibly worthwhile. I think maybe takeaway number two is just being away from the classroom should remind us how deeply profound and influential culture is in the classroom. Mm. I'm actually writing another book right now with two colleagues of mine, Daryl Williams and, and Hilary Lewis. Um, and it's called an orderly classroom. And it's about the fact that, um, a classroom that is intentionally designed to build culture is a, is a gift to students that, um, you know, people say nice things about teach like a champion and people say terrible things about teach like a champion. And, you know, like, uh, one of the things they say terrible things about is the idea of tracking, which is the notion that kids look at each other when someone is talking in class mm. and people have told me, and, you know, oh, it's an act of violence against children to, cause them to control, to force them to do that. And why, would you, why do you need to control their bodies? And um, no one in their right mind speaks something that matters to them, that is meaningful, 
that is um, heartfelt to a room full of people whose backs are turned to them, who are slouched in their chairs saying, I don't give a damn what you're saying, and who are looking out the window. And so if we want to, that sense of like, we have to design the culture that fosters learning in this classroom, that is the thing that changes kids' lives. It is an act of love <laughs> to, to bring kids into a classroom where their classmates are looking at them when they speak as if to say, I care what you're saying, your words matter to me. Say what's, you know, say what's profound to you. Hmm. Uh, and I think that we, I think there's a part of us that, uh, that mistook that and lost sight of that. And, um, and I just, I hope that when we're, now that we're away from the classroom, when we get back, we'll see how profoundly important the culture that we build for students. It's very hard to build a great classroom culture. It asks us to do things that are authoritative, but that is different from authoritarian. And people have confused the <laughs> people have confused those two things, and they've dismissed things that are authoritative based on the argument, based on the mistaken belief that they are authoritarian. Um, and if we walk away from that and stop building cultures that support and foster learning and protect kids' rights to go right to go into a classroom that has a profound love for and valuation on, on learning that is the best learning environment it can be, um, it will be a profound loss. And so I hope that we'll go back, we'll go back to the classroom and we'll, we'll think, my gosh, this, uh, this is a beautiful thing and I'm going to attend to it with, uh, with passion and love and diligence and, and build great, great cultures for kids because they deserve it. Yeah. Those are, those are wise words, Doug. And, we appreciate you taking the time. We are looking forward to your new book coming out and we will be sure to link our listeners in the show notes to those that you have already released. So thank you again. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for taking the time to chat. We're so grateful to our amazing guest today and to all of you making a difference in the lives of students every single day. Be sure to check the show notes for resource links from today's podcast, and we want to hear your stories and successes. Follow us on Facebook at Science of Reading the Community, or if you're looking to help implement the science of reading, send an email to sormatters at amplify.com. Tell us what guests you think we should book, or tell us about the research that really excites you. And be sure to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Susan Lambert.